the lighting of the second candle, we draw closer to Christmas, Advent, this time of waiting and expectation. And today's topic for our sermon is on sin, the thing everybody likes to talk about during Christmas time and to think about in terms of what's going on at Christmas time. But there's something appropriate to it as we think about sin and Christmas time. One, because what's the central part of Christmas? That God sent Jesus, right? And God sent Jesus, why? To rescue us and to save us from our sin. So we're continuing our study today in the book of Romans and looking at what that's about and how it relates to sin. But we heard some of those topics and those ideas that are connected throughout all of our Scripture, even in the readings that were done earlier for us today. And you might wonder, what are all these extra readings we're doing? We're not talking about those. Well, the church for many hundreds of years has had what's called a lectionary. It's simply a fancy word for a series of readings. It's a way for us to go through the story of the Bible and to be reminded of those. And we follow those readings each year during the Advent season and oftentimes during Lent, those times reading up to Christmas. And it's a series of readings, one from the Old Testament and then typically a psalm and then a New Testament reading, an epistle, and then also one of the gospel readings. And it's a way for us to catch all that story. But you might have heard, as we read this, the story of John the Baptist, or it simply called him John, this man, this strange figure out by the wilderness he's preaching. But if you listen to what he was saying, he was talking about repentance and this change of heart. He was talking about you can't raise up, or God can raise up children from anywhere. And so this idea of your background and where you come from. And he talked about the power of the Spirit. And all of these things connect to themes we've talked about in Romans. So we've been doing a series on Romans for about the past 11 weeks now. And going through this letter, and Romans is a letter from a man named Paul, an early follower of Jesus, to this group of believers in the city of Rome. And he's introducing to them, he's introducing himself to them. He's never met them. He's dealing with some of the issues that are going on in that congregation. And he's also telling them about the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and the way that God has worked in Jesus to make things right. And so he's painted a picture, and we're going into the second half of chapter 6, and the first few chapters painted a picture of this power of sin that we're under. And then he talked about how God sent his son Jesus as a gift. And so this word of gift or grace becomes an important part. And this gift is a power to make us right, not simply to declare us right, but also to make us right. And he talked about Abraham, and so this connection with John about like your physical ancestry isn't significant, but what's significant is your faith in Jesus Christ. And he's talked and continues in chapter 5 about what this gift looks like and how we've been justified and justified or made right through Jesus. And this death to sin and chapter 6 starts with the same way. In the first half of chapter 6, people are wondering this power because it's been described, Paul has described, God gives this grace, this super abundant gift in response to our sin, that this grace of God, this gift of God is so much greater than our sin. And in response to our sin, God pours out His grace. And so Paul responds in the first part of chapter 6 to this question. Somebody might say, well, if God's grace, if, if God gives more gifts in response to our sin, why not sin some more? Because then God will get to give more gifts. And Paul says, no, no, it doesn't work that way. He's saying we're dead to sin. We live in a new realm. And so today we're picking up kind of the second half of that or a corollary to it. And so he's saying, well, if there's no law, if we're just living under grace, 
Does that mean we're free to do what we want? I mean, isn't that the idea of grace? We can, we can do whatever we want. Does freedom from the power of sin mean we're free to sin? And he says, no, no. It means we're free not to sin. And so we're going to be reading today um, Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. And it starts off this way. It says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I am using an example of everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? These things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin... You have become slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Paul uses an imagery of slavery, and kind of this idea of freedom for our ways to think about our relationship to sin. And part of this means thinking about what these words mean, slavery and freedom. And so I want us to think a little bit about how we use those words and how our culture often uses the words of slavery and freedom. Through much of history, the Bible has talked about freedom as freedom from. So freedom from some sort of external or internal oppression. Freedom from our desires, our slavery to sin doing what you don't want to do, which we're going to talk more about next week. But unfortunately, in our society today, when we talk about freedom, oftentimes it's looked at in terms of the freedom to do something. You know, it's the free to be you and me, right? We can do whatever thing we want. And so there's any sort of restraint is an obstacle to our freedom. And sometimes we feel like there's always somebody putting some limit on my freedom. Maybe it's the law. Whatever laws are passed out by our government, they're putting a restriction on my freedom. There's a sign that says I'm only supposed to go 70 miles an hour down the highway. It's restricting my freedom. Or our culture says certain things about the things we can do and we can't do. And so we're told what sort of topics we can talk about or how we're supposed to understand ourselves or how we're supposed to view ourselves or our views of sexuality, what that looks like. Or maybe it's our peers, the people that we hang around, and they put restrictions on us and say, well, you can't talk about that. And you say, no, but I'm free. I'm free to do whatever I want. And we often bristle. We're bothered. We're irritated when someone tries to restrict our freedom. When someone tells us we can't do something, 
We know this from children, but we think, oh, it's just something children do. But how often does it not just children, but as adults, when somebody tells us we can't do something, what's the first thing we want to do? Do it, right? We want, we want to do it. Because sometimes we're like, well, why can't I do that? Or who are you to tell me what to do? Who are you to restrict my freedom? And so we think of freedom as freedom too, but the Scripture talks about freedom as freedom from. And so as we think about this idea of understanding as freedom as freedom from, we can understand what Paul is talking about here as he uses this picture of slavery. And now for us, slavery evokes many different images, particularly as we think of the race-based chattel slavery that took place here in the United States. Slavery in the ancient world was very common. I've seen estimates from 50 to 80% of the ancient Roman world were probably slaves at one point in their life. But slavery operated in different ways, oftentimes not racial, sometimes racial, sometimes as victories, uh, spoils of war, but oftentimes people sold themselves into slavery. And you think, why would someone do that? Because of debt. It was a way for people to get out of debt. You would go into debt and you would look and you'd say, I, I, can't, I can't work this off, but I'll sell myself as a slave to you for two years and pay off my debt and get out. And now, Paul has some of this, I think, in mind here when he uses those phrases. If you notice, he says, offer yourself. He says, when he talks about this, he says, offer yourself as a slave to righteousness. And so I think it's a sense of selling yourself. In verse 16, where he talks about it, he says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So he's painting this picture of saying, we can offer ourselves as slaves. And he says there's two options. You can offer yourself as a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Did you notice the third option there? There wasn't one. There's no third option. It's slave to sin, slave to righteousness. And each has different consequences, and Paul points it out, particularly at the end. He says, okay, pop quiz, are we listening here? What are the results, what are the consequences if we offer ourselves as a slave to sin? Death. All right. Slave to righteousness, life. I mean, there we go, right? Death, life. Now, if you had to choose one of those two, it's a hard call, right? How many choose death? How many choose life? So if you want life, do you want to be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness? And that's what he's getting at here is these different consequences. So the problem is, what does it mean to be a slave to sin? Think about it this way. Have you ever done something you didn't want to do? Okay, Thanksgiving was, what, a week and a half ago? So, is it possible that some of you went into Thanksgiving saying, I'm going to be really good this year, and I'm just going to have one small plate? And then three servings later, like, well, I, you know, it was just, but there was so much there, or, well, mom made that pie, and I don't want to insult her by only eating one piece, so I took those two pieces of pie, and, well, there was the left... We can say silly things like that, but there are plenty of other things where we think, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stop doing that. 
I'm going to drive, and when somebody cuts me off, I'm just going to smile. And then the person in front of you cuts you off or doesn't turn on their turn signal or do whatever it is that irritates you. And all of a sudden, you do that thing you don't want to do. And this is what Paul is talking about when he's talking about the slavery to sin. He's talking about this. It's about our desires. And so, I want us to think we go a little bit deeper here in terms of thinking about our desires and the things that we want. There was a man named St. Augustine who lived in the early church, and he talked about desires as one of the central things that drives us. And he said one of the central things that leads us to sin are disordered desires. And we all have desires and wants. And Augustine talked about it in terms of our disordered desires are either wanting the wrong thing or wanting the right things in the wrong order. But in the modern world, it's very different. In our modern world, often what happens is we are given the message that to repress our desire is sinful. And I use the word sinful in quotation, that we're not supposed to repress our desires. If we have something, we, we should just do it. Think about phrases that we hear sometimes, be true to yourself, right? Well, what does that mean? Be true to yourself means if you want something, you should do it. Follow your heart, right? We're supposed to follow our heart. How about you do you? I mean, that means, I mean that's essentially saying, hey, if you, if you want to do something, you should go ahead and do it. Or this one, the heart wants what the heart wants. Now, you may not be familiar with that. It's originally from an Emily Dickinson um, poem, but it came into popular usage in two ways. One was through Woody Allen. And some of you are old enough to remember Woody Allen as director. But there was this whole thing where Woody Allen got married and then he um, had a sexually abusive relationship with his daughter. And, and, a, and an interviewer is really pressing in them on this later, trying to help him understand and see and maybe admit to what he did was wrong and terrible and horrible. And, and although the interviewer wouldn't use it, sinful. And Woody Allen's response was, the heart wants what the heart wants. In other words, it's just my desires. And who are you to tell me that my desires are wrong? So we see how in our modern world, desires are doing this. And how is this slavery? It's acting not, we choose to, it's in slavery, the want wins out. See, when we're slaves to sin, We know the right thing to do. We've got this idea in our head of what the right thing is to do. But when we're slaves to sin, the want, the desires, those disordered desires that Augustine talks about, win out. Or as Dallas Willard says it, he says, the I want to and it pleases me are now widely regarded as overriding reasons for doing something. When in fact, they should never function by themselves as a reason for action. He says, I want to and it pleases me are now widely regarded as overriding reasons for doing something. Well, why did you do that? Well, I wanted to. It feels good. It pleases me. And so it's this sense of we're slaves to our desires. And when we're slaves to sin, 
We can't choose other than what we want or what we desire. And it's this cycle that builds up. It's this human cycle that builds up. And so thinking about this from a simple point, one of the things that happens, if we go back to the first pages of the Bible, to Adam and Eve, to the first man and the first woman, what's the central sin that they commit is their, their decision to decide for themselves what's right and wrong. They're set in this garden, they're given this tree, and they, God gives them commands, and essentially as they take from this fruit of this tree, they're saying, I'm deciding for myself what's right and what's wrong, rather than God deciding. All right, so now, set up this picture. We'll take me for example. I choose for myself what's right and wrong. And I enter into this pattern. Now, if I choose something that I think is right and it contrasts, it, it, it clashes with what God desires, what's wrong, I come into this moment where I have to decide, do I do what I think is right or do, what I do, what, do I do what God thinks is right? And when we're slaves to sin, what happens is we choose and we say for ourselves, I'm going to choose what I think is right. Now, what, the, what does that do? It creates kind of an internal dissonance. We're like, okay, wait, wait a minute. And we all experience that. It's the Jiminy Cricket. It's the conscience. It's the thing, that moment where we do the wrong thing, and we know what we're supposed to be doing. We know the right thing to do, but we do something different. And so our mind, our brain, our psychology has to make amends for it somehow. So what we start to do is we start to push that good of God farther away. And it begins this cycle because now all of a sudden, well, I've chosen for myself what's right and I've put God aside. And so it begins to amplify and more and more we begin to choose what we think is right and less what God thinks is right. Now, certainly we can say, well, does a slave to sin mean I never do anything right now? I mean, we can all choose to do the right thing sometimes. Maybe you've experienced it in your own life. Maybe you've witnessed it in your own life. I think of dating myself again here, an old episode of the TV show Friends. And so in this episode, in this show Friends, this, these uh, 20, 30-somethings live in this apartment, and there's, this, there's an episode in which one of the girls in the show starts dating this guy. And this guy has this horrible temper, but only one person ever sees it happening. He manages to control it when he's around all the other people. And that's kind of how we act sometimes, is sometimes we're really good at controlling it around certain people. I mean, how many times are we meet someone and we think, oh, they're such a nice person, and somebody says, no, no, they've got a horrible temper. You're like, I never see it. Or we read something in the newspaper and we see someone's committed a crime. It's like, I, I don't understand. They were such a good boy. They were such a good girl. That, that's not who they... But because we're able to control our actions, it's the people who are able to come and to sit in church and, and to serve on the committees and do all those wonderful things and stand up and sing and stand in the front row and have the hymnal out and sing with the loudest voice. And you think, oh, what a good Christian. But you don't see them walk out in the parking lot and start screaming at their kids or what goes on later on in the day. And so we're all able to control those desires to some extent. But a slave to sin, you can never com maintain complete vigilance because it's exhausting. And so that's where this control, these desires come in. 
And so there's this cycle that begins to build up as we go in this cycle of we deny the true good and we're slaves. And what Paul wants us to see is that way of life, that slavery to sin leads where? Death. But he says this interesting thing is, he doesn't just simply say, God has come and set us free from this slavery. It's like, we're free. Run, do what you want. He says, you've been set free from sins, and it become what? Slaves to righteousness. Or offer yourself as a slave to God. In other words, he says, exchange one master for the other. Which is the part that I tend to pass over because I think, oh, God came and He set me free from sin. I'm free. He doesn't invite us to simply be free. He invites us instead to be now a slave to something else. We transition from one to another. There was a man named Origen who lived about 175 years after Jesus, and he wrote a commentary on the book of Romans. I'll read you just a little bit of that. This is what he says. It is hardly cause for boasting that someone should serve virtue in the same way he once served vice. Righteousness ought to be honored much more fully and more seriously than that. Instead, he says, you can't boast, you know, someone should serve virtue rather than vice. He goes on, he says, he, talking about Paul, requires the same zeal from the convert as was present in him as a sinner. That's where he goes down. He says, once your feet ran to the temples of demons, now they run to the church of God. Once they ran to spill blood, now they run to set it free. Once your hands were stretched out to steal what belonged to others, now they are stretched out for you to be generous with what is your own. He's saying, we should have the same zeal for doing good as we did for doing evil and sin. We've spent our life one way, but now we must do another. It's not enough to be satisfied being dead to sin. If we truly belong to God, doing what pleases God will be as irresistible as sin. Think about that. And we think of like, oh, I'm doing good. And we sometimes, we, we, we grit our teeth. We grit our teeth and think like, oh, there's that person and they're so irritating, but Jesus told me to love them, so I'm going to love them. And I love them so much. When we got, a, we got a pleasure out of, like, despising them, didn't we? I mean, there was this, this pleasure, this little nerve that, like, when we started, you know, talking about, like, oh, that man, I can't stand that guy. It's like, oh, that feels so good. But what if, what if Jesus is calling us to be at the point where loving the person who irritates us, being patient, blessing those who curse us, going the extra mile, giving generously, isn't something we grit our teeth, but brings us joy and is easy and simple. And that's what he's, Paul is inviting us here to do, is this goal is we become slaves to that, we naturally obey it. We become the people who do that. When we're slaves to sin, that's what control is. The goal is to become controlled by and obedient to righteousness. And Jesus doesn't want us to just agree with him, I mean, I agree with Jesus on a lot of things. Jesus doesn't want us to just agree. He wants us to do what He says. So when He talks about, when Jesus, and I think 
one of the best readings, if you go back to the Gospel of Matthew and read chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount as he paints this picture of goodness and righteousness and life in the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't want us to just agree that hatred for our neighbor is the same as murder. He doesn't want us to just agree with him that looking at a woman with lust in her eyes is the same as committing adultery. He wants us to live that and to obey it and to do it with joy in our hearts. And so this is the process of formation that Paul is getting at. We're going to look at this over the next couple of weeks. This is the change, the transformation. So he talked about it in the first half where we're baptized into Christ, that we are given a new identity. We're dead to sin. And what he's saying is now there's not just a lack of desire for them, but to have an alternative. We have this power of grace for a new choice. What he's saying is we're free from sin even if we're not free of sin. I mean, Jesus doesn't take us in and all of a sudden all those things are gone. But what he's saying is we don't have to listen to those anymore because we've lived this life of listening to those or we have a habit of doing things. And that's so often what the life of Jesus is, is taking on new habits because the goal isn't simply to choose the right thing at the moment but for that to be our natural and normal response. Because now at this moment, there are times where somebody hurts me and I, and I stop and I'm irritated and bothered and then I stop and think, well, but Jesus wants me to pray for them and forgive them. And so then I do that. Sometimes. Sometimes sooner, sometimes later. But what if instead my first response without my even thinking about it was to forgive, was to love, was to bless. And so that's what the life of Jesus looks like. This move from the slaves to righteousness means we naturally obey that. We just naturally do it. We don't stop and think, what would Jesus do? but we simply do it because the power and the life of Jesus is living into us. So we reckon ourselves dead to sin, and then we submit our members to righteousness. And so it's doing without thinking. And that's developing new habits. It's developing those new habits, and this is that process of spiritual formation or transformation, spiritual discipleship, being an apprentice of Jesus, whichever language you want to use of saying, how do we move to this point where we can now say, offer yourself as an obedient slave, a slave of the one you obeyed, to be a slave to God? It's to simply naturally obey it. And so we do this through what the church has called through the years spiritual disciplines. These practices we do to develop new habits. And so, sociologists and psychologists have been studying a lot about the idea of habits. And I don't know, I've read dozens of articles on habits, and I'm still working on forming habits, and sometimes you'll know, read one article that says, oh, it takes 22 days, 42 days, 69 days, 90 days, who knows how many days. And sometimes it depends on the kind of habit. But the goal is to form new habits, and sometimes we, and that's what we're doing is we have these old habits of being slaves to sin, of the way we respond, of we think me first. But the habit of Jesus is others first. And so it's this move, and how do we begin to grow in those habits? It's through these practices of discipline, of beginning to 
immerse ourselves in the life of Jesus so that our natural response is to do what God wants us to do. That we do it without thinking that we enter into those phases of doing it. And so we practice things. And so sometimes it may be practices of solitude and silence, which is one of the most terrifying things in the modern world, of being silent for a little while. And by silent meaning turning off all those outside distractions, to shut down our phones, to turn off the radio, to turn off the television that's droning in the background, the noise that constantly filling our mind. Because what we often discover is when we turn off all those external noises, what happens? The internal noise goes up. And all of a sudden, all those things that are going in our heads start to play. But what followers of Jesus through the centuries have discovered is these times of silence are so important because it begins to say not only turning off the outward noise, but turning off our own desire to speak because in that silence, we can begin to develop the habit of listening to who God is and what He's saying to us. Or there's habits like worship, you know, of developing that habit of saying, I'm going to come I'm going to be with the people of God on a Sunday morning. Are there times you can't make it? There are absolutely times you can't make it. But what I have seen in 25 plus years of pastoral ministry is too many people that I've loved and known whose habit fades away for different reasons. First it becomes, well, this thing's going and, and then we start doing it a little bit less. And then that exactly that same thing. As we do something less and less, it becomes easier and easier not to do it. Or as we do it more and more often, it becomes a natural thing we do. I mean, we do certain things and we, in our morning practices, and if you think through your own day, most of us, my guess is when you get in the car now, you don't have to stop and think, put on the seatbelt. It simply happens. Now, some of you might, and some of you say, well, I have a seatbelt. What's that thing? But for most of us, and especially younger folks who grew up, that's just what you did. You got in the car and you put on a seatbelt. You don't stop and think, oh, I saw that movie back when I was in driver's ed, and people don't wear seatbelts. They get thrown from the car, so I should probably do this. Let me think about it. Yeah, I guess I'll put the seatbelt on. It's a habit. We think, well, that's just a little thing. But that's the spiritual life, because sometimes we think of the life with God as just this big, overarching, incredible thing, but it's habits, it's little habits, all developed all through the day and all through our life as we, as we do things, as we take time and as we read Scripture, as we pray, as we practice solitude and silence, as we fast, as we do simple acts all through the time, as we say, okay, I want to train my tongue to bless people, not to curse, and we say, I want to forgive people, and say, oh, I didn't forgive in the moment, but then maybe you go back and you fix it. Or you realize, like, well, my first response when that thing happened was to lie to the person and tell them I didn't do it. And they say, oh, but what can the habit be? The habit can be now to go and to apologize and say, no, I, I, and explain and tell them I was wrong and this is what I did. And we begin to develop and inculcate those habits and, and bring inside of them. And what happens is we do that. We become slaves to obedience, slaves to righteousness, and all of a sudden it just becomes the thing we do. No, it's a lifelong process. It doesn't happen overnight. Remember I told you the habits, who knows, that 
Psychologists debate about how long it takes to develop a habit. It takes a while to develop a habit, and it takes a while to break old habits. Because if we've been slaves to sin, our habits have been otherwise. Our habits have been to respond in the wrong way. And now God is inviting us to respond in the right way. And so Paul is inviting us to make ourselves slaves to righteousness, to develop those habits, to build in ourselves the kind of people who naturally respond and do what God wants us to. Notice this, he talks about it, slaves to obedience, slaves to righteousness, slaves to God, doing what God has called us to do out of obedience, out of joy, and naturally doing them. He says, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. See, as we do that, we grow in holiness. We grow to be more like Jesus. And the result is eternal life. Because the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, again, because this reminds us that it's all a power of grace. We do these things, and that's an important reminder. As we do these practices, we're simply, we're not changing ourselves. God is changing us through the power of His grace. But the free gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So may we be slaves to righteousness. May we be slaves to obedience. May we be slaves to God and enjoy that free gift, which is eternal life. Amen.